0: Hey, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Andrew, and I'm privileged to serve as a senior pastor here at Reach Church. And whether you're here at our Blair campus or you're joining us online, we love that you've made this weekend an opportunity for you to be a part of what God is doing here at Reach Church. I want to invite you right now, straight away, to grab your Bible and turn to the New Testament Gospel, the New Testament story of Jesus' life, known as the book of Mark. If you don't have a Bible, now is a great time for you to raise your hand, right where you're at in your seat, throw your hand up unapologetically, and let one of our ushers know that you'd like a Bible. These Bibles are yours. They're yours to have and to keep. Turn to Mark chapter 12. If you're looking for Mark, the fastest and easiest way is going to be for you to look at the table of contents at the beginning of your Bible, and it will give you the names of the different books of the Bible. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. It is actually the second book of the New Testament, Matthew, and then Mark. That is the quickest way for you to find that. Hey, we are going to pick up week four of a series that we're actually going to allow to take us through the rest of the year on worship. We're looking at what worship is and what worship isn't. Worship, worthyship, is a demonstration of our adoration and affection and love and obedience to our God. Week one, Pastor Caleb, our worship pastor, preached the most prolific message I have ever heard on worship. He talked about worship from the posture of the human condition And he introduced several original terms or language from the Hebrew. He talked about halal and he talked about the different types of of worship, tada, and to make a joyful noise, and to clap, and to dance, and to sing, and to celebrate. And he introduced to us a freedom of worship. We too, Pastor Russell, our worship pastor, along with the resident, Caden, preached a message on sacrifice looking at Peter and John on their way to the temple, coming across a man who is begging for alms. Looking at this man, kneeling down, getting positionally face-to-face with him, Peter says, gold and silver I don't have, but what I have I give you. And he takes him by the hands and he says, get up and walk, and they together go into the place of worship and celebrate the sacrifice that Peter gave of himself. Last week we talked about the act of worship through service. And we saw moments ago a demonstration of that, 690 plus hours. Over 170 volunteers, 700 bags of garbage that we went into this community and we were able to be the literal hands and feet of our Lord and Savior through the body of believers known as the church. And that that is actually an act of worship, to, to work as unto the Lord is actually to worship the Lord. And today we're going to talk about worship through giving. Now before we jump into giving, there are a couple of things that I want you to know. First of all, this is a topic that pastors fear talking about more than every other other topic in the Bible. That's not hyperbole. They have done polls on this. Pastors fear talking about finances for a lot of reasons. Number one, they're afraid of upsetting anybody. Number two, they're undereducated about this topic. And so the second thing I would say to you is this message is not about what I as your pastor or we as a church want from you, but what we believe God wants for you. And then just as a, as an aside note, Before 7 a.m., I had already had 32 ounces of coffee. So I am ready to get after this. I hope you are as well. If you're still looking for the Gospel of Mark, I want to give you an opportunity to get there. But I want to share some facts with you, not just about giving, but fun facts in general. I'm one of those guys that gets caught up in silly little articles and things that just are, are, are mindless. And here's one that is from Good Housekeeping. So ladies, this is on good authority. Good Housekeeping shared five fascinating facts. The hundred folds in a chef's hat, also known as the toque, is actually representative of the level of experience that the chefs have. Have you ever heard the old adage, there's more than one way to cook an egg? There's actually a hundred different ways to cook an egg. That's why they have a hundred different little flaps in their hat, is it represents over a hundred different ways to cook an egg. In my house, there's one. It's called scrambled. Scrambled. Now, how many of you ever heard the statement, it's as American as apple pie? The irony in that is that apples come from Asia, and the first apple pie came out of England. So how ironic is that? It's really not as American as apple pie. It's as Asian as apple pie. Uh, I recently, well, actually probably about a year ago, my son bought me a 23andMe kind of a DNA kit. And I found out what my heritage is through however they, they suck all that information through your body and spit it in a tube and determined through this finding that I am over 60% Scottish. So this one was of particular interest to me. Do you know what the national animal of Scotland is? Whoever just said that, you're right. It's a unicorn. It's a unicorn. Yes. Although it's a fabled creature, the national animal of Scotland is actually the mythical unicorn. You guys know about myths here, like the mythical national championship that we think we're going to have at some point again in the future. Oh, and before you get mad at me, trust me, I was sitting there, I went to bed early last night when the Ducks gave up two touchdowns in 27 seconds, and it was 28-0 at halftime. I had already had enough of Nebraska earlier in the day, I didn't need to watch it again. And so I shut it off, Oregon got dismantled by the Utes. I had a man last service said, Pastor, I almost wore my Utah jersey to church. I said, well, I would have had to excommunicate you, so it's a good thing you didn't. (laughs) Dr. Seuss wrote Green Eggs and Ham on a bet. Do you know what the bet was? His editor challenged him that he could not write a book in under 50 words. And so, down to the last dot, it is exactly 50 words. Ladies, here's one for you. There are over 10 holidays nationally that celebrate chocolate. 10 national holidays to celebrate chocolate. The National Confectionery Association, apparently that is a thing, recognizes everything from National Milk Chocolate Day to National Bittersweet Chocolate with Almonds Day. National Chocolate Day alone happens three times annually, July 7th, October 28th, and December 28th. And as an aside note, in good housekeeping, it says in bold and parentheses, we support this. I love fun facts. I want to share some facts with you in the Bible. Did you know, looking at etymology, now that's investigating the origin of a word. Did you know that the word forgiveness is found between the Old Testament and New Testament 109 different times? Did you know that the Bible talks about sin between the Old and New Testament 448 times? The Bible talks about love 551 times. The Bible talks about heaven and hell combined approximately 636 times. Approximate because it depends on the translation that they, they use at the time. The Bible talks about faith and prayer 649 times. But did you know that the Bible talks about all things money between the Old Testament and the New Testament 2,300 times. 2,300 times. It is literally the second most talked about subject in the entire Bible. Only second to the kingdom of God and the things of the kingdom of God. Let me put this into perspective. If you combine heaven and hell, the Bible talks about finances four times more. If you combine prayer with faith, the Bible talks about finances more than four times. Those two subjects alone. In fact, in the Gospels... The gospel is just a way of saying the good news, the euangelion, it's what we celebrate. It's the life and the, the ministry, the teachings, the miracles, the signs, the wonders, the, and, and the instructions of Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, and promise of second coming. Throughout the course of Jesus, 30 plus years on earth, there's a collection of historical accounts of Jesus' life known as the gospels. And in that, Jesus uses what we call parables to teach, to make kingdom statements or kingdom stories to help us understand the person of God, the character of God and how humanity interacts with the things of God. There are 39 parables. Of the 39 parables, 11 of them have to do with finances. And of the 11 parables, did you know that one in every 10 sentences in Jesus' Gospels is about finances? So it begs the question, why are we afraid to wrestle with finances? What is it about pastors and this position of rightly dividing God's word and sharing with authenticity and accuracy that is so intimidating. Well, again, I go right back to the idea that it's, it's one of those things where people come with preconceived ideas to church, assuming that a pastor is going to talk about money and giving and what the church wants from you, what the church needs from you, what the church demands from you. Well, the good news for you today, if you're here for the first time, that's not what this message is about. And the good news for you, if you call Reach Church Home, is that's not what this message is about. This message is not about what the church wants from you, but what we believe God wants for you. Lord, I pray with all of my heart that you go before me now. Help me with all the preparations that I've done to set aside my expectations. In this moment, free me from distractions and help me to focus entirely and intently on you. God, I ask that you would help me to rightly divide your word, to do it with authenticity and to do it with accuracy in ways that matter and make sense. Holy Spirit, I invite your presence to be evident right now and that you would change our hearts and liken us all the more into the image that we were created in your image. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be received as a gift to you alone, Lord. Amen. In Matthew chapter 11, or excuse me, in Mark chapter 11, we see the triumphal entry of Jesus. Jesus by way of culture and context into where we're going to be in Mark 12 today. Jesus is coming off of the side of the Mount of Olives with his disciples and this this magnificent entry into Jerusalem. And it's not just a, a normal entry. They're there at a very unique season. It's called the Passover. It's a major pilgrimage for the Jewish community and followers of Yahweh. In the early establishment of the relationship known as a covenant between God and his people, there was specific instructions given about collective worship at specific times of year and done in specific ways. The Passover is to celebrate the liberation of the nation of Israel who have been freed from over 400 years of oppression and captivity at the hands of the Egyptians. Now, beginning in Exodus and repeated in Leviticus, we see clear instructions on what is to take place in worship with unleavened bread, with the Seder, with the way the tabernacle is set up and established, with the sacrifices that are brought. And in the Old Testament system, this is an example of how we as humanity celebrate and interact with the creator of the universe As a way of celebrating, to say, Thank you, God. We love you, God. We are committed to you, God. In Jerusalem at this time, it's estimated that the population of Jerusalem was somewhere between 55,000 and 60,000 people. The expectation during a pilgrimage like this is that God fearing Jews that were able within days, plural, ability to make the trip, the journey, to the holy city of Jerusalem, to the holy temple, were expected to do so. And The men in each household would bring their wives, their children, their servants, and even their livestock that they had prepared for the sacrifice, and they would make this pilgrimage. And so, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, at the same time the disciples were recording their gospels of the life and the ministry of Jesus would actually go on to record that Jerusalem during this time and the surrounding communities would swell to as many as 2 million people. You think about that. A community of fifty-five to 60,000 people that would then swell to as many as 2 million people. And in Jerusalem at that time, at the Holy Temple, they would have as many as 180,000 people all coming and going at the same time, intersecting lives. Now, there's a lot that goes into this, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to explore and see some of this today. But Jesus, as he's with his disciples, and he arrives with this triumphal entry, which we celebrate in the church in the Christian calendar as Palm Sunday, will come in with his disciples, and they'll go to the tabernacle. Now, there are some distinctions between the temple, the tabernacle, and, and, and the synagogue. The synagogue was a place... instruction where the scrolls would be read and recited and where the priest would then explain and help us understand the law, God's law, so that we could abide in his law, which is protective, not prohibitive. But the temple was established as a place of ministry to God, of worship to God, it wasn't necessarily a place or a platform for teaching or instruction or for us to receive. Rather, it was a place for us to, to give, to give sacrificially, to give radically, to give intentionally. And Jesus is there as part of their cultural traditions, and he's there with his disciples. Now, this temple is really unique. Solomon's Colonnade in the heart of the city is actually over 15 football fields in length, and in the middle, is the Holy of Holies. And just outside the Holy of Holies is the holy place where the priests would reside. And just outside of that, you see that the, the, there's the place of incense, the altar. There, there's, there's, the, there, there's, all kind, there's a place for the sacrifices. And then outside of that, you've got the, the, the court of men. And outside of that, you've got the court of women. And outside of the inner workings of the temple, you've got what's known as the court of Gentiles. So between the entrance from the colonnade up into the point of the temple is what's known as the court of the Gentiles. It's called the court of the Gentiles because it was reserved for people who were not Jewish to come in and to be a part of an expressive worship as well. But there were limitations placed on them. They were not God's chosen people. It was not set apart for them. So they they could come, but they could only come so far. There were actually stones erected out of the ground all the way around. And there were placards along the way that read that this was as far as the Gentiles could go. And that if they stepped any further, that they actually could be punished even up into death. Just past the court of the Gentiles was the court of women as they make their way into the temple. In the court of women, several things are going on there. This is uh, a, an amazing place where there's a lot of movement. We see a lot of Jesus in his final teachings, Says I am statements take place right there inside the court of women. Like when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he's talking where there's a menorah lit behind him full of light that is illuminating the room. When Jesus says, I am the living water, there's an altar where the priests along with the processional will come in and pour out water for eight days. Seven plus one on this altar of celebration. There's a lot of teaching that happens, which is really obscure and not commonplace there. And we see Jesus take advantage once again of this time in the temple with his disciples and others. There are four times that we see recorded in this temple experience the last week of Jesus' life and ministry, beginning in Mark 11 and finishing in Mark 15, Jesus' death and his burial where his adversaries will come and challenge him, hoping to trip him up, hoping to get him to, to commit some sort of heresy, to say something that was going to be against their law and cause confusion for the people. On the heels of one of those such statements where Jesus has to address some religious leaders about their piety and their, the way that they think of themselves and how they present themselves, Jesus and his disciples will go into the court of women and will be a part of, Intentionally worshiping through giving. Let's pick this up. Mark chapter 12, verse verse 41. Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple and watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Many rich people put in large amounts. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions. For they gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. There's a couple of things that we need to unpack in this text before we move on to helping us understand how it applies to our lives and our ministry today. The first is Jesus sitting in the temple. This is very different than what you and I have. There were no pews. There were no comfortable seats available for us to sit at. And so it's likely then that Jesus was leaning against the wall, maybe sitting against the wall, as people were coming in and placing their gifts into the treasury box. Now, when you think about the treasury box, you should think about what is known as coffers. Traditionally, for about 40 years, they would pass a plate in the church, and people would give their offerings and their tithe into that. This was an example of that. Here at Reach Church, we have giving boxes Located throughout the building for people who consider Reach Church their home and want to partner with us in life and in ministry to give their gifts through the tithe, which is giving to God, but also offerings above and beyond. In the temple, there's 13 treasury boxes, and they literally look like trumpets, and they're made of of metal. And as they're strategically located, there are some things we need to understand about these temple treasury boxes. The first eight boxes were very specific and very unique. They had placards on them which represented the specific need that a person was giving to. Now let me state again, this is a free will offering. This is not a tithe. It was not an expectation. In fact, there is only two of the treasury boxes that were dedicated to the temple shekel or half shekel that every male in the household was responsible to pay the tax for the temple. That means that 11 of the other 13 boxes were either designated or undesignated of the designated treasury boxes. In other words, sometimes you write on your, your, your checkbooks, you get the memo line where you kind of put in a memo what this is for. And sometimes we'll take up a special offering as a church for a, a, maybe a youth event or for camp or something coming up. That's kind of what this was. One box was dedicated for the wood, for the sacrifices, another treasury box would be dedicated for the oil, for the for, for the for the sacrifice, for the worship. Another box would be dedicated for the incense that they would use to burn on top of the coal, so they would rise up. In fact, we just got done singing about that song, a song representing the. That our, our, the, the rising morning and night, night and morning, day and night, that it rises to the Lord. That's a representation of our prayers going up like sweet incense rising before the Lord. And so these boxes had designations. But of these boxes 9 through 13, they were unmarked treasury boxes. And it was understood that it was used for the least of these. That the church would use it at their discretion to help the orphans and the widows and those with significant needs. And I just wanna state one more time this was not an obligation to give to each and every one of these things or any one of these things. For, for a male in the household, it was an obligation to give a half a shekel. As a temple tax. But anything above and beyond that, it's assumed that the sacrifices and the the tithe have already been placed. So anything that we're going to read about that's being given now is a free will gift. Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple. And I find it curious. This is a very personal worship in a very public platform. This is a very personal worship in a very public platform. They had caste systems. They had the haves and the have-nots. It was very clear based on how someone presented themselves, how they looked, how they dressed, who they ran with, their standing and status in society. And each is coming and out of the generosity of their own hearts they're giving to these different things and Jesus is sitting there and he's observing this worship one of the things that I love about worship and observing worship is that we can learn a lot about worship by watching others worship we have a lot that we can learn by watching others worship and he is worthy of it all We may not always be comfortable with the same approach to worship, but it doesn't mean that that worship is wrong worship. Now, there is an order of worship in Scripture, beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, all the way through 1 Corinthians 14, and we are going to talk about that in this series. We'll talk about worship and what is and what's not acceptable. But what I want us to understand is that just because we may not always understand or find it the most comfortable does not make it wrong. It doesn't make it unacceptable. But all things in worship must begin and end with sola scriptura. The word of God. If it is not in here, then we must be very careful. The theology that we carry with worship. Including what we think. A lot of times worship boils down to personal preference. Week one, Pastor Caleb talked about that. Look. Look. This is not about, you. he probably says something more like, look, y'all. <laughs> I can't even hear that song, Worthy of It All, without seeing, here's what Caleb does. You are worthy of it all. Like, y'all notice that? Like he comes down. Like, he comes down. I can't get down that far because I won't get back up. But he, like he comes and he brings, the whole incense came up with him. <sighs> Hallelujah. You use those young knees. Church, as Jesus is sitting there with his disciples watching worship, he's observing and he's going to use it as an opportunity to teach his disciples. This morning, I got to stand up front, stage right, with two of my children and one of our friends. (laughs) And I'm just so tremendously blessed at their passion for worship, unapologetically. A lot of times, if I'm honest, I get a little, I'm like, all right, so if I start dancing, if I start moving, who's gonna think what? And I don't stand still very well. I'm not dueling, but I don't stand still very well. And I can get a little me-centric about worship. And I just love, in particular, my nine-year-old daughter standing up front, she doesn't care what any of you think. She's throwing her hands up in the air, singing out loud and worshiping. And, and I, I love that she's learned that by watching a community of worshipers that have not only given her the freedom to do that, but have instilled that in her as a value. Jesus is gonna take the time to not only observe, but teach his disciples the value add about worshiping through the way we give of our finances. He calls his disciples over. And there's large crowds. There's large crowds. 180,000 people estimated in the temple at that time, roaming around, 15 football fields long, just crowded. And there's these large crowds coming and going, and they're worshiping, and they're celebrating. After all, this is the liberation of slavery out of Egypt and how God has been so generous to the people. And then it says, many rich people put in large amounts. Can, Can I just tell you for a moment that I've been in the church now 28 years and I've been in ministry 25. I have heard this text taught so many times that there is a stark contrast between the wealthy people and the widow and her two mites. I have heard it taught that the wealthy people were somehow wrong and that the, 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 the poor widow was right. Can I just dispel a myth? If we're just holding true, true to scripture, if we're not going to read through this with our, lens, our cultural lenses on, or what any bias has been given to us over the years, if we just read the text as the text, Jesus in here nowhere says that there is a problem with being wealthy. He doesn't. He just doesn't. It doesn't exist here. He is just stating the matter of facts that are presented. Now we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about the sacrifice that is involved with this. And motivations, he does address sacrifice and motivations and cultural contexts and and cultural norms and those things. But here, we just see that it says that many rich people put in large amounts. And I praise God for preparing and equipping people to be good stewards of their finances and having extra to to have the means that can do above and beyond, that can place large amounts of, of resources, not just money, but of any resource to advance the gospel and to see his kingdom come here on earth. And we're going to talk about that at the end. I love that. Verse 42 Now we see a second example, not a contrary example, but a second example of worship through the form of giving, and the Bible says that there was a poor widow who came and dropped in two small coins or leptons. Here's the thing I want us to know about this poor widow. In the original Greek language, that word poor literally means slumped over or a beggar, someone who is not of little means, of no means. We see this used in other places as an individual who begged or was homeless, who had nothing. So we're not taught a lot about this woman in scripture, but two things we know for sure. Number one, she was a widow, so her husband has passed away. And number two, she likely is homeless. That she comes from nothing is what the scriptures say in the original language. She comes from nothing. She's slumped over. And hunched over, and she's a beggar. This woman comes into the temple, a very private act in a very public place, and she puts in a gift. And it doesn't say where she gave it. It doesn't say that she gave it to the oil, or to the incense, or to the wood, or if she gave it to the temple tax, or if she just gave it to the free will box. Trusting that the church would be good stewards of it, using discretion to give the resources where the resources were most necessary at the time. It just says that the widow came and dropped in two small coins. Now the two small coins, I could get into a lot of the history behind this, but I just simply would say to you that it is worth just a very fraction of what today, I did the math multiple times this morning, It is literally worth a fraction of a penny today. I I, I actually said it in the first service. I said it's two-eighths of a penny. And I had two finance managers come up and say, you do realize that's one quarter. Yeah, and guess what? One quarter is also two-eighths. Leave me alone. (laughs) It is literally minuscule. It is a fraction of a penny You think about that. If you were to dig in your purse, you would probably have to go and find a penny because we just toss them aside. We discard them. They're good for nothing. They're almost a nuisance at this point. You find them maybe under the couch. I don't know where you'd even find them. But this woman, what she gave was literally less than a fraction of what today you and I would call a penny. It's a a fraction of a denarii. It's one 64th of a denarii. A denarii is a day's wage. A day's wage is, is what you and I would call minimum wage today. You do a job and you get paid a minimum wage. And, and with that minimum wage, you can decide what you do with it. Well, this woman on this minimum wage gets a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. And it says that she's all she's got. And these aren't my words. It says this widow came and dropped in two small coins. She came from no means. That's the word Poor. And she came and she dropped in two small coins. Jesus, he took this opportunity to teach his disciples about worship. He called his disciples to him. And I can imagine this. There's a scene where you've got a lot. It says there's a lot of people coming, moving around. And there's got to be noise because the form of of funding at this time would have been in copper and bronze and silver and gold. And would have been in in the, the, the monies of the culture at that time. And so you've got these metal receptacles placed throughout the court of the women. And you've got people coming and going and they're throwing in large amounts of gold and silver and other monies. And it's loud. Just you can hear the clanging of the cash being thrown into the receptacles. And people are celebrating and they're praising God that they have the means and the ability to even do this. And Jesus, he takes this opportunity. He says, guys, come here, lean in. I got to tell you something. And now he's teaching them how to worship by watching other people worship through their finances. And he says, you guys see, you see, that, you see that widow over there? Verse 43, Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I tell you the truth. Anytime you see that in scripture, you've got to stop and ask the question, why in the world is the truth being told here? One of two things, either they've been believing a lie, something that is wrong, predicated on culture and context, or two, he's saying, I really need you to pay attention. This is important. And I actually believe... For this conversation, based on the culture of this text, I think it's both. I think we look at this societally and we make some assumptions about people and their value based on the things that they possess. I think we place value on people's lives based on where they live, what they drive, how they dress, where they work, what the title is on their names, where they went to school, all of it. I think we look at this and we're influenced culturally. We would be stupid if we weren't. And I'm, I'm, I'm being honest. Like, listen to me. I, I, I just give one example. My son and my wife, Stacey, are in Arizona. They're in Tucson, Arizona. He's playing at a massive tournament, soccer tournaments this weekend with probably 100 colleges all over the country. And one of the coaches approached him is from uh, Harvard. And, and said, hey, look, uh, we've been following you and blah, blah, blah. And, and he had a clipboard with Caden's picture and a bunch of notes about Caden. And I said, so if they offered you a scholarship, would you go? And he said, well, I heard that they don't offer full scholarships. I said, well, listen, I don't know what they offer. But if they offered you a, a I'm sorry, it was Stanford, not Harvard, Stanford. I said, if they offered you a full ride scholarship, would you go? He said, dad, I'd be stupid not to. It's Stanford. I'm like, well, for me, you'd be stupid to go, because when you graduate, you have the same degree that they get when they graduate from any other state college, but whatever. He's like, but it's Stanford. Don't we do that? Don't we do that? Don't we look at what the society around us has, and we assign value on what they have, and we, we then now compare and contrast what we have with what they have? societally, Jesus is literally dealing with this. We're going to learn about that in just a moment. But his disciples have been influenced by the culture surrounding them. And Jesus brings them over and he says, guys, I want you to pay attention to something. I tell you the truth. And the second thing that I think is happening is Jesus is saying, what I'm about to tell you isn't going to make sense. So I need to make sure you're listening. In my house... Uh, I may not be a a great parent all the time, but one thing I've learned over years of experience that has worked for us is we will tell our children something and instead of saying, do you understand me? And waiting for them to say, yes, dad, or yes, sir, or whatever it is, uh, I'll say something and I'll say, now, what did I just say? And I either get a a quick response that they understood or I just get that blink. You know that blink, parents? And that gives me an opportunity to restate what I said. So now if they don't follow through, I know that they didn't misunderstand me. And so now I'm just gonna whoop them. Right? No, that's not true. Yeah. Spare the rod, spoil the child, Pastor. Preach it. Jesus says, What I'm about to tell you is fundamentally going to change the way you look at the world. What does he tell him? He says, I tell you the truth. This poor widow, what does poor mean? Slumped over, beggared, with nothing. This woman who has nothing to give has given more than all the others who are making contributions. Stop. If Jesus had finished his statement there, all the mathematicians in this room are gonna do the math. And it's not gonna add up. They're looking at this saying, well, Jesus... All those rich people, the the, the landowners that that, that are really healthy with their finances, they're they're giving. I mean, look at at that gift. He just gave $10,000, Jesus. That guy just gave 20 grand. Are you kidding me? She just gave a fraction of a penny. How can you say that she gave more than what they gave? Because we use the metrics of the world around us to determine our sacrifice. Right? We use the metrics of the world surrounding us to determine our sacrifice. And we look at, this is true in the church. We look at what some people give and we feel like we could never give what they give and so we have this attitude, why bother? Because it's not a giving competition. Giving isn't about what they give versus what you give. Giving is an act of worship because he is worthy of it all. And so what Jesus is saying has nothing to do with the monetary system and everything to do with the motivation of the heart. It's a condition of the human heart. Jesus says, that woman right there, according to the standards of the world, gave just a fraction of a fraction, but she's given more than everybody else. And then he goes on to say, verse 44, for they gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. Can can we just reframe culture for just a second? I, want to, I, want to, I just want to speak to you for a moment on the basis of culture and context. If I asked you to give an honest valuation of your life and your resources, how many of you, and I said you had two camps to choose from, you are a wealthy landowner who has a lot of excess to give, or you are just a poor widow with just a little bit to give. How many? And I don't want you to raise your hands, and I don't need you pointing at anybody. But how many of you would feel like the wealthy landowner that could just, I could just give it. I wouldn't even feel. I, I mean, I'm just giving on the interest, right? This is, I'm good. This is, I'm, I can give so much because I've got so much to give. Versus how many of us would say, geez, giving anything feels like a stretch, I get, it really hurts to give. If we're being honest, the majority of this congregation and those watching online and those all over the world would feel like we are the least of these, that we are the, the beggar, wouldn't we? I felt that way. So let me reframe culture for you. In your house, according to today's standards, November 21st, 2021, if you make $38,000, if you're a single income household and you make $38,000, you top 10% of the world. If you make $38,000, you are more wealthy than 90% of the rest of humanity. Let me spin it to you this way. If you're blessed enough to have a, a really secure job making great money or you're a multiple income household. If you make $80,000, you are the top 1% of the top 1% in the world. $80,000. So if you make $38,000 or more, you're top 10% globally. And if you make $80,000 or more, you are top 1% of 1% the world over. More than 50% of the world will live on a meal of rice and beans. Now, we look at our lives, and we feel like the issue is money. But the issue isn't money. The real issue is called margin. It's called priorities. It's what you care most about. And when you, when you lack margin, money becomes... Scarce, And when it becomes scarce, you, you hold on tightly and you try to control it as much as you can. And Jesus says here, I tell you the truth, this woman has given more than everybody else who's making contributions. For they, they gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, gave everything she had to live on. Let me give a little contrast. If, if, if the, uh, the Oracle of Omaha, Mr. Warren Buffett himself, walked in today and dropped a million dollars in one of our giving boxes, do you think he would even feel that? I mean he could sell just a handful of stocks from Berkshire Hathaway and and replace that. But like like even his second third stock, right? I can't even buy a fraction of the twelfth stock that doesn't even exist yet. Uh, Like let's be honest. And, 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 and I'm not saying, look, Mr. Buffett, if you're watching online and you feel like the Lord's laid, laid it upon your heart to come and bring a million dollars to us here at Reach Church, I promise we'll be good stewards of that and far be it from us to get in the way of what God wants to do through you. Come on. But we have single moms with two kids that it would take everything to throw $20 in. You think about what $20 can get you today. Gas. Food, And when you're, on, on, when you're living on little means in college, I think I came up with the most creative ways ever to eat Top Ramen. I could live off Top. Do you know my favorite way of eating Top Ramen? I wish I was lying. Open up a pack of 10-cent Top Ramen, put ketchup from McDonald's over the top of that, open the seasoning, pour the seasoning on top of the ketchup so it doesn't move, and just eat it right there. Let's go. Let's go. And if you didn't have ketchup... You just, you inhaled the, the seasoning. You know what I'm talking about? All of a sudden you got seasoning coming out your nose. <laughs> yeah. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Listen. I want to I help us understand culture that's going on here. Jesus is using this as a teaching moment about two extremes. Not because these rich people are wrong, but because of motivation. Turn with me just, or just a couple of pages to your left in, in Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus... Is on his way from the Mount of Olives to the temple. And as he's on his way, he's confronted by a rich young ruler. In Mark chapter 10, verse 17, as Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down, and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There's still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions, this has just happened days before Jesus is at the temple with his disciples. And his disciples are asking themselves in the same instance, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, on your own it's impossible, but through God all things are possible. And he goes on to explain that it is easier for you to go through the eye of, a, a camel to go through or the eye of a needle than it is for you to get to heaven. And he's not talking about money, he's talking about the motivation What drives this young man? He wanted check in hand, pin ready. He said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? I'll write the check. How big do you want it? And Jesus says, get rid of it all. Do you know what he was doing there? He was challenging this young man to say, "Uh, do you really believe that God's worthy of it all? Will you give him your all? You can't take any of it with you. Who do you know of your relatives that is dead and gone that has any of their wealth in heaven right now? I have friends who are working exhaustively to get money set aside so that their children and grandchildren have something of substance for them when they pass away. My hope and prayer, and this is not to throw stones at anybody, I hope and pray that my children know how hard and desperate I'm working, that they know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior because no amount of money I leave you is gonna save you. It is in Christ and him alone. And instead... If you look at Luke 9, 23 through 25, in comparison now, Matthew, Mark, Luke 9, 23 through 25. In Luke 9, 23, here's what we see. Jesus said, if you want to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but you are lost or destroyed? Church, This is an incredible illustration. This is an incredible example. This is a credible, incredible historical account of what took place. And and I wrote down three thoughts that stood out to me in this text this morning, three thoughts that I continue to come back to about why this woman would be in the temple worshiping. It would have been so much easier for her not to even go, to spare the humiliation, to save what little she had so she might be able to buy a piece of produce on the way home, to use that time that she had afforded to her to ask for more alms. But she chose to go to worship. Why? Because there's something significant about being a part of a community of believers to get to worship and celebrate God together in community, common unity While the world has a caste system and we can look on at others and declare value on them, Jesus declares through his life and Paul through his letters that in Christ there is no more male, no more female, no more slave, no more free, no more Greek, no more Jew, that we are all one in Christ. And so the church should be the place, not a place, the place where regardless of your background and your baggage, you can come to experience common unity around the person of Christ. The person of Christ is what brings us together, not divides us. This woman is at the temple worshiping because she loves God and wants to love God with others. One of the things that I hate about technology and our church today, the 21st century, people, and they've said this before, but it's more prevalent now than ever when they say stupid things like, well, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You're right. We're saved by grace through faith, not by work so that none of us can boast. But if you want to obey God, you're going to find your butt in a seat at church. Do not forsake the assembly or the gathering of the assembly, as some are in the habit of doing. But get together so you can mutually encourage one another, so you can collaborate, so that you can be one body with many parts. How can I? How can I be a part of the body if I'm not even a participant in the body? I've got these God-given gifts and this ordination that He's placed on my life to use the things that He's given me, including my resources. But if I won't get out of my own way, how can I be a part of public worship and collective worship? We are called to do this together, life and ministry together. When people say, well, I don't don't really like going to church because church is messed up and a bunch of hypocrites. You're right. You're right. We don't always get it right. We don't always get it right here at Reach Church. And if you find a perfect church, don't go there because you'll screw it up. We are not a perfect people. But we are under the grace of a perfect God. We need each other. She's at the temple because she wants to worship. She wants to give. She may not have to give what everybody else has to give, but she wants to give what she has to give. So here's three thoughts I wrote down. Worship through giving is an obligation. Worship through giving is an obligation. You say, Pastor, you said it's not what God wants from us, it's what God wants for us. And you're right, God wants for you to give. Right. Proverbs 3.9 is, a, is, a, is kind of a retrospective of what we can see in Leviticus and in Numbers and in Deuteronomy when God, through his covenant, establishes the relationship that he'll have with his people, including the ground rules. And it says, honor the Lord, Proverbs 3.9, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. How many of you know that the very first act of worship between humanity and God in the Bible wasn't singing, it wasn't dancing, it wasn't scripture reading, it wasn't, uh, it was, do you know what it was? Genesis chapter four, Cain and Abel, and it was the blood sacrifice and the grain offering. The very first act of worship recorded in scripture is giving to God. God has established this precedent from, from from the beginning of time. And people will get, get hung up on the tithe. And they say, well, Pastor, the tithe is an Old Testament rule. And we're in the New Testament with the New Covenant. We're, we're under the grace of God, not the laws of God. Really? Really? Is that what you believe? We're saved by grace through faith. You're right. There's a new covenant, which is Jesus' blood. Absolutely, once and for all, for all. But Jesus said, and I quote, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And part of the law was Malachi 3.10. Bring your treasures to the storehouse, singular, not plural. Don't pick and choose, and then decide where you want it to go. Bring your gifts. And by the way, the tithe, was it represents the 10th. And people say, well, but that's Old Testament. You're right. The only example Jesus gives of how much we should give in the New Testament is everything. So you do the math. Are you comfortable with the Old Testament line, 10% or everything in the New Testament? Well, where's my hallelujahs? Where's my amen? amen? Hallelujah. You can't pick and choose when it's convenient for you what your faith looks like to suit your personal desires. Worship through giving is an obligation, Proverbs 3, 9. Worship through giving is an opportunity Worship through giving is an opportunity. Acts chapter 20, verses 33 through 35. Paul, he's in Ephesus, and he's writing to the church in Ephesus about the opportunity that they have to give financially. And in verse 33, he says, I have never coveted anyone's silver or gold or fine clothes. You know that these hands of mine have worked to supply my own needs and even the needs of those who are with me. And I've been a constant example of how you can help those in need by working hard. You should remember the words of our Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Acts 20, through 35. Not only is worship through giving an obligation, but worship through giving is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to celebrate God, his faithfulness, his provision, and to provide for others, to come alongside others and bless them. And finally, worship through giving is celebration. We think of celebration as clapping. <laughs> Whistling, cheering, dancing. But worship through giving is celebration? Well, absolutely. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15, Paul writes the church in Corinth on the merit of giving to other churches and giving to others in need. I encourage you to just read as a comparison and a contrast between 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He uses the same illustration of a farmer sowing in seeds. But here's what he writes in verse 6, chapter 9. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. In other words, when you invest a little, you're only going to get a little. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. Now listen to this. This is perhaps my favorite part of the whole message today is wrapped up right here in these final verses, these last five verses. For God is the one who provides seeds for the farmer, and then bread to eat. And in the same way, he will provide increase in your resources and then produce a, a, produce a grace, great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when he takes your gifts to those who, who uh, and when we, the church, take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. You see that? Through the discretion of the Holy Spirit in the local church. James 1.27 says, pure and genuine authentic religion is this, caring for the needs of the orphans and the widows and the least of these. And the Bible says that when you actually participate in giving and you give generously with glad and sincere hearts, that you are actually participating in the presentation of the gospel, not by the talking heads that stand on this stage, but by meeting the tangible needs of the people. Hey, lean in. You want to hear something? Find a spot in the New Testament. Find a spot in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Find a spot in Jesus' life where he didn't first perform a miracle before he started teaching. Where he didn't meet some need of somebody before he started teaching. Now, Jesus isn't a genie in the bottle, but he gave credibility to the message that he brought. We can sit here and say all we want, the things about God and about worship and about celebration and about faithfulness, but if we sit and do nothing with the gifts that God has bestowed upon this church and upon this body, we are missing a part of the gospel presentation. Through the resources, through the generous resources that God provides, you and I, we are able to be good stewards. In verse 11, he says, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two things will result from the ministry of giving. It's actually a ministry. You see that? Two good things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met. That's the local church. And they will joyfully express their thanks to God. That's celebration. That's worship. As a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God. For your generosity to them and all the believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ. And they will pray for you with deep affection because of the overflowing grace God has given to you. Thank God for this gift, too wonderful for words. Wow. I want to offer something as a challenge to you. Stole this from our youth pastor. It's not. It's not. Uh, you know. It's not uh, intellectual properties. He works for me. <laughs> In youth group, they're doing each one reach one. I love that each one reach one. So we're going to do something starting today, and over the next several weeks, we've identified our worship pastor, our outreach pastor. Definitely not our worship pastor. Pastor Steve was at seminary last week and, and uh, Dr. Vermillion made him sing the, the, the Bible. He has got the gift of outreach. That is it. It was, it, it, it was bad. It was, it was not a joyful noise. It was not, it was just noise. But done with a sincere heart. We were, talking about, we were talking about this message and this, this stirring that we have in our hearts for ministry. We said, what if, what if we as a church challenge and create an opportunity for our church not only to give of their tithe, but to, to give a love offering, to give a gift beyond their tithe that we were then able to take into the community and just give away as the gospel. And Doolin said, bro, I got three people in my mind right now. And I got a phone call from an administrator for one of the schools who told me about some other needs. And all of a sudden, literally, like clock just, just one after the other kept coming up. And then Doolin said, bro, what if, what if we did a challenge? What if we gave an opportunity and people, each one bring one, one gift Not one tithe, but one gift, above and beyond what you would normally give the church. Bring one gift, and that gift could be a dollar, it could be $10, it could be a $1,000, it could be $10,000. It's whatever God places on your heart, and to give with a glad and sincere heart, not out of compulsion, but out of obedience and as an act of worship, of celebration, to say, God, you are worthy of it all. And my challenge is that every one of us accepts this challenge. Every one of us at some level accepts this challenge. And then he called me, Doolin called me and said, bro, you're not even going to believe this. He was processing this idea with someone and he said, I already got a phone call to church that said, we're going to kick things off. This person gave a $1,000 donation right away. $1,000. Yeah, pray, you can clap for that. Praise God. And then, to top it off, came up with a way to match the gift up to $3,000. So if this church... step up collectively and collaboratively and give $3,000. We've got a matching donation of an additional $3,000. Can you imagine the way that gospel presentation would meet physical needs of people in our community and change their lives forever? And not so that Reach Church gets noticed. I don't care. Like, I genuinely don't care. But it's so that we are doing our part in living out the gospel what can you give? I mean, even, I was even looking around my house the other day. Just, just, I've got so much stuff, it's stupid. I was at Shields yesterday. Didn't go to Chipotle. My kids all strong-armed me into going to Chick-fil-A. It was okay. I got a gift. Um, my wife got me a gift for our, our 19th anniversary, which was last week, the 16th. And I don't want to tell you what I was taking back and what I got, but it was a Nebraska Cornhusker sweatshirt that was too big, and I got an Oregon Ducks sweatshirt instead. But it's really cool. And I looked around. I literally, I called my wife. We were at the store two hours waiting for my seventh grade daughter to get done playing bowling with, with the youth group. And I called my wife. I said, Stacy, I'm literally standing here. And she, I, like, I don't even know what to get. I got, I got this free, free money, right? All $75 of it. And I, I, I don't need anything. I'm going to go buy another sweatshirt to go with my 30. And I started thinking, even if I don't have money in the bank to give, what do I have that I can sell to give away or to give? To? Like, guys, every one of us can participate in this. I don't want to guilt anybody into this. I just want you to prayerfully consider, understand that giving is worship because he is worthy. He is worthy of it all. Giving is an obligation, Proverbs 3, 9. Giving is an opportunity, Acts 20. And giving is a celebration, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So over the next several weeks, that box is going to be a, a, a plexiglass. Is that what you call it, plexiglass? Clear? What do they it? Is it plexiglass? Plexiglass box in the, in the foyer, lobby, as you come and go. And I had people last service saying, oh, pastor, can I come back? with my gift? No, 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 we're not closing. It's not one and done. We're just going to leave it up. We're just going to see what the Lord does. And at the end of it, we'll give you the exact dollar amount that's in there. And then, God willing, we'll be able to record um, kind of the, just the outpouring of what we're able to do. And we can celebrate collectively the gospel lived out through the generosity of the believers. And when you give, you are declaring, God, you are worthy of it all.